Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we're talking about using a lab in your investigations. More specifically, we're going to talk to two experienced forensic scientists about analysis of fatty acids, oils, and alcohols, mistakes investigators make when collecting evidence and working with a lab, and what you can do to use your laboratories as expert resources instead of simply processing facilities. Laurel Mason is a principal and laboratory director at Analytical Forensic Associates. She developed and manages laboratory operations training and quality assurance, including chemical analysis of ignitable liquids in fire debris. She routinely conducts chemical analysis of fire evidence, including fatty acid methyl esters in self-heating fires, GCMS, FTIR, and light microscopy. She has analyzed or supervised the analysis of over 150,000 fire debris samples and testified as an expert witness in more than 150 cases. Laurel holds the certification of fellow in the specialty field of fire debris with the American Board of Criminalistics. She is a member of the Academy, uh, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, the Southern Association of Forensic Scientists, the International Association of Arson Investigators, NAFI, NFPA, ASTM, and the American Chemical Society. She has held multiple offices in the Georgia chapter of the IWI and is a life member. She has authored several publications related to fire debris analysis and lectures on evidence collection, preservation, and laboratory analysis. Doug Byron is the president of Forensic and Scientific Testing Incorporated, an ISO 17025 accredited laboratory specializing in fire debris analysis and providing support for fire investigators and adjusters. He has made over 100,000 ignitable liquid determinations. He helps develop fire debris consensus standards. He is court qualified as an expert in 27 U.S. states and Southeast Asia. He has authored journal articles and a book chapter on fatty acids analysis and served as a technical editor for two forensic books. He uses his experience and skills to perform fatty acid analysis to help determine spontaneous combustion possibilities, along with physical tests such as modified Mackie tests to confirm self-heating tendencies. He also conducts research to improve the reliability of fire debris testing, including research of light volatiles such as alcohols and the retention of extracts on carbon strips. Laurel and Doug, you two are packed with experience and expertise. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you for having us, Rod. Thanks for having us, Rod. So um, I'd like to start out a little general, and then we'll narrow in on oils and fatty acids. So drawing from your years of expertise and experience, what are the mistakes you see fire investigators and evidence techs making when collecting the many kinds of evidence in fire cases? Laurel, you want to take it first? Sure. Um, I think most of the problems that we see are evidence collection and packaging of the evidence. In addition to that, not notifying the lab or having an open communication with the laboratory or the analyst is what it is that the investigator is looking for as far as the type of analyses, whether it is for ignitable liquids, whether it's for fatty acids. But actually most of the issues that I've seen in the past is with the collection of the evidence itself, which is why we try to um, continue our training and education with our customers throughout the United States and Canada as far as um, evidence collection. Great to hear, and it's a good time to pitch the IWI Evidence Guide that's online, um, and that's going to be updated as well, which teaches some of the proper evidence collection. Uh, can you add some more specifics so we can give some people some ideas like, 
let's just talk about gloves and cans, for instance. Gloves and cans are a big no-no. Um, I don't know where it started, but we don't see it as often as we used to. However, the, the whole point of wearing gloves is to protect from contaminating or cross-contaminating evidence. Um, here in the laboratory, we did a little, just a little quick study where two of my chemists went to pump gas and they wore gloves. They wore the, the rubber glove or nitrile gloves. They brought them back, put them in cans, and we tested them. And we found traces of gasoline because our recovery technique and our analytical techniques are so sensitive that it's possible to find the ignitable liquid or gasoline. So we have a steadfast rule here in our laboratory. You don't pump gas at all during the day or before <laughs> your way into work. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. What about sealing processes or practices? What we see quite often is that the, in most of the evidence that we receive, they're in gallon or quart cans. And that V-lock area where the lid goes on top of the can, oftentimes the investigators don't clean that area out. And if that's not done, you don't get a good seal on the evidence container itself, on the lid itself. So that needs to be cleaned out, tapped down with a mallet, and then it needs to be tape sealed with tamper evident tape so that when we receive it in the laboratory, we can record that it was sealed properly with tape and intact upon receipt. Okay. What about packaging size? This was something that I hadn't thought about. Packaging is um, important that you select the appropriate size container for the piece of evidence. You don't want a small piece of evidence in a gallon can, especially if that, that evidence contains an obvious odor of an ignitable liquid, because what will happen is the vapor pressure will build up and then it'll pop that lid off the can. So you want to, uh, to, to select a container that will fit the debris. Conversely, you don't want to have the evidence container more than three quarters full because during the recovery of the ignitable liquids, we need that headspace to produce vapors upon heating so that we can collect any volatile components. Appreciate you going into some of these details because I, I know we've taught a lot of this on CFI Trainer and I, and I know that this information gets put out there a lot, but we have some new people that are listening to the podcast and it never hurts to go over some of the, the basics. Uh, the last thing I had here is in my notes was related to time uh, and the submission of samples. Well, it's, it's always advisable to submit them as soon as you take them. Um, the, the longer that the evidence sits in the evidence container, obviously the more chance there is for any additional evaporation. If the evidence container is compromised, then you're really going to have an issue with, with uh, evaporation of the ignitable liquid. So as soon as the investigator collects the sample, it's best to send the sample to the laboratory for the analysis. You know, this makes me think about how we can improve or in some cases perhaps rethink the relationship between the investigator and the laboratory. For you, uh, and let's start with you, Doug. What's the ideal relationship with a fire investigator or an attorney look like? The ideal uh, conversation that goes on is basically 
where they would call and tell you the scenario because every fire is similar, but they're all different. So they don't really, fire investigators have a hard time. So attorneys have a hard time as well putting the big picture together and what analysis is going to be needed and then what we can do to help them and what they can do either when they're at the scene or putting the case together of what they need done or not need done or what the data we provide means to them and their scene and does it fit the uh, help them with their hypothesis or does it not. Some of these cases we see, uh, we want to discuss this ahead of time so we can basically come up with the proper techniques and test protocols for them, uh, whether it's fatty acids, alcohols, or ignitable liquids. So the conversation, I think everybody agree that uh, is essential ahead of time instead of two years afterwards and find out that their hypothesis was incorrect because of incorrect interpretation of the data by the fire investigator or the adjuster or the attorney. So, so we like that up front. I'm sorry, go ahead. I said that we like to get that up front. And so we uh, clarify that and move forward and we don't uh, basically make a mess of the case. So that handles sort of collaboration and communication, making sure we have thorough communication between uh, both parties. What, what can you do as far as helping people with education? With education with the investigators, judges, and attorneys um, is to provide them with the information in the field of what's actually happening, what's going on. Uh, for instance, uh, ASTM 1618, everybody's heard it. Everybody knows it's the interpretation of ignited liquid residues. Well, now it's going to include fatty acids. It has its own standalone category for fatty acid-based products, and that includes you know, biodiesel B100, cooking oils, and things of that nature to harmonize with the already existing 2881 ASTM, which is the fame, and people know that as fame, which will you know, find stains, cooking oils, and the like. But now ASTM 1618 has that. So we need to educate the investigator so they are familiar with these terms that we're going to use today uh, for oils and fatty acids, such as uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, unsaturated, monounsaturated, saturated. So those need, they need to familiarize themselves with that. And there's a few, you know, the fire debris analysis book, chapter 14 is a quick read. It's a few pages and have a basic understanding of what the report will read and what it says and describe more of the understanding of the process. So the better understanding of the process the investigator, adjuster, and attorneys have, the better they can understand the report. And ASTM 1618 is going to be split into four other ASTM documents, the classification, report writing, and instrumental analysis. So we need to basically express and train the investigators on what's happening in the future and currently. And with that, they can get those that little bit of that information on the lexicon of these the topic today, which is the oils, fats, and alcohols in those uh, chapter 14 and chapter four of the forensic analysis, fire, debris, and explosives. And there's it occurred the quick reads, and it'll give them basic understanding of what they need to know as far as how they can help their hypothesis and opinions in fire scenes. Okay. So to recap sort of this beginning, um, more basic introduction that we've done here, you know, make sure we have good collaboration and communication and uh, take advantage of the education that the people at the lab can, can offer you as an investigator. Uh, 
one thing I had here I, I thought was interesting. It's also, you know, some sort of setting realistic expectations. And uh, it sounds to me like what you're both saying is, you know, and I've heard this from both of you and others in the past, let's not meet at the fire scene or let's not meet after. Let's talk about things and make sure we have a good relationship before we start working together. So uh, how do you like to be approached? Um, and either one of you can answer, both of you can answer. How do you like to be approached by a fire investigator you've never worked with? I'd like to just give them a chat and talk with them about what their needs are, where they're, you know, what they need as far as evidence supplies and um, what they expect as far as turnaround time, things like that. Um, and then we talk about, we have some informational in things that we send out regarding evidence collection on um, uh, samples that, that we want to look for ignitable liquids in, as well as for evidence collection for fatty acid methyl esters. Um, how to package certain types of um, liquid samples for comparison or identification. And we always have the, the moniker here that if in doubt, give us a shout, which means if the fire investigator is at the fire scene, he can give us a call if he needs direction on evidence collection or, or, or how he should package something or, or what he's looking at. And, you know, we can actually look at his video and, and he can take us along with him and, and we can guide him as far as evidence collection. So we'd like to have that initial communication and then follow up on everything when there's any questions. It's nice to have collection. That it's nice to have that technology of, you know, being able to flip your phone out and grab a video and share that with somebody online instantly. It's a, it's a good thing. What are your thoughts, Doug? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, we're few, probably the only laboratories in around that will uh, encourage the investigator especially on the scene to give us a call either one of us it's uh, same rules apply with our lab as well you you're at the fire scene and i always tell them is don't forget we're usually inside in air conditioned hvac laboratories <laughs> with uh, libraries and computers internet you know ice water or whatever and uh you're out there on the fire scene so we're a support line uh so Basically, you're at the fire scene. You don't have a lot of resource and reference material when you approach a fire scene for collection of evidence and preservation of something that's non-routine. So we encourage them to uh, call us. We'll talk about it. And it doesn't matter if they're clients or not clients. You're at a fire scene and you need some assistance. You just call and get that assistance while you're there so, or if you, in case you need to go somewhere and get materials if you need to. And then, of course, send us whatever you have. As far as if you get new material, so we can make sure it's clear of any unintended ignitable liquids. But yeah, we get guide those guys at the scene, so the environmental investigator can get the information they need when they're there and not have to worry about going back. So that should be in every fire investigator's mind is they have an avenue, uh, whoever one of us, whoever they call, to get that information while they're there, which will save a lot of time and frustration and anxiety of what they're going to do when they're going to do how they're going to do it and again if they have to need just need reference material as far as what's the temperature of a 100 watt light bulb on its side we can look that up so we have ignition handbook ready from veto we have all kinds of information that they may want not necessarily for sampling either just to uh have a question that's great to hear. And you bring up a good point because I'm, I'm thinking about where you guys are down south uh, specifically. You know, it's got to be pretty nasty to be on some of those fire scenes. And 
real nice to be able to make a call to somebody who's in air conditioning with nice cool water but uh <laughs> we'll hope they have some water as well hope so. um let's move into what our main gist of today is and that's talking about fatty acids um what are fatty acids and how do they get involved in a fire case yeah fatty acids are basically from free fatty acids and triglycerides so fat we call it we transesterify them for fatty acid methyl esters and we'll just go with fames just to keep it simple and fames can come in a fire scene and be useful say a cooking fire suspected cooking fire it could be cooking oils on rags that were uh laundered by the restaurant owner or oil soaked rags left near heat source or in wood finishes varnishes wood stains so that goes into some subrogation issues and SIU issues rarely, but it can be used, the ignitable liquids in the stains and wood finishes. So these fatty acid methyl esters um, can basically be anywhere. And now that they're a category standalone classification in the interpretation guide, they we have fatty acid-based products, uh, charcoal lighter fluids, we have some of these things in laundry products. So basically, we have these tests we're going to have to use for the fatty acid methyl esters. So they're usually in 18 carbon chains. And this is described in Chapter 14 of the Fire Analysis book. And they go through it really well to describe the oils and and what how the, their function and characters. But basically, we go by chronological numbers of 18 is a carbon chain. And then a uh, semicolon, or actually a colon, whatever it is, the two dots, and a number, zero, one, two, three. And so basically we use those to keep it simple. And the, the 18 and then whatever the number is beside it, two, three, those are polyunsaturated. A one is mono and zero is saturated. So you can use 16, uh, one, 16, two. Well, 16, 0, then 18, 3, 2, and 1. So these fatty acids are, seem complicated, but they're really, really simple. And we can okay. repetize those, and we have the standard test methods, and we can look at those to determine, you know, if, uh, if it's unsaturated, saturated, and then it's chemical tendency to self-heat. So that's basically the general form of the FAMES, or fatty acid methyl esters, and it's... Uh, relatively new to the fire investigation field about 20 years or so and it's been around for a long time hundreds of years as far as these oils varnishes stained linseed oil so it's a uh, pretty interesting topic when when Doug's talking about saturated monounsaturated polyunsaturated and he talked about the numbers after the the carbon what those numbers indicate are the number number of double bonds that are in that carbon chain of 18 and the greater the number of double bonds for instance in c 18.3 you have three double bonds those type of fatty acids have a greater propensity for undergoing self-heating at those reactive sites so that's just an amplification as to what those numbers mean when they are seen in a report correct and it's the double bonds that create that once they start polymerizing and cross-linking produce the heat. So the more double bonds you have, the basically more better, higher tendency you have of them self-heating because as they break, they create heat. 
And just to be clear, when you're saying self-heating, you're talking about spontaneous combustion. It can eventually turn into spontaneous combustion. It, the reaction itself is an exothermic reaction. And if that heat is not allowed to dissipate, that reaction will go into a thermal runway condition. And then you have self-heating and you can, uh, and open flaming and ignition of the surrounding combustible materials. Right. Then, so self-heating will occur as an exothermic reaction and it can possibly go into spontaneous combustion. Okay. And some of these compounds and oily products that are made today, they can self-heat to a point, but then the reactants deplete. And through other tests, you can see that they may self-heat, but they don't self-heat enough to go to the thermal runaway. So there's some um, nuances in with it. But in general, that's what happens. It'll go exothermic reaction, self-heating, thermal runaway, and spontaneous combustion. Okay. So... um what is the analysis that, that is performed on fatty acids? You touched on it. Um, what do you need to do that analysis? Uh, either one of you want to take that first? Sure. It depends upon the debris sample itself. In, in a lot of cases, what we're looking at are cloth materials, whether those cloth materials are materials that are found in a dryer where there may have been a, a fire in the dryer or other materials that have um, been used to stain or finish the surfaces in staining cases. What we do is we take a portion of that material and, and in our laboratory, we look at and smell and, and look at the, the best areas to take a sample that will yield the result that we're looking for if possible. Um, so we're a little selective on sampling we take that material, we extract it with a solvent called pentane, and then concentrate that solvent by evaporation after we filter it and remove any of the, any particulate that might be present. And then because the fatty acids are such large molecules, they're not good analytes for the um, gas chromatograph. So we have to change them into fatty acid methyl esters, which is the derivatization. So we add another, solvent to that, so to speak. And then what is left in the oily layer, which is the pentane layer, layer is the fatty acid methyl ester. And that's what we analyze on gas chromatography mass spectrometry. And we determine what is left as far as any fatty acids, whether they're saturated, unsaturated, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, and that's what that's how we interpret the data. Okay. So what what do investigators sometimes have an issue with? What what do they do sometimes that you wish they could do better uh, with this evidence? Um, with the evidence what the or the data, once we send the report, I'll start with the report. We'll send the report and they need to understand, and so do adjusters and insurance companies and subrogation. They receive the report and we are reporting the current condition after the fire. So they need to, instead of thinking that these results are what was before the fire, sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what they read in the report is the way it was before the fire. So they can then assume and work backwards. So as long as they understand it's after the fire and then we can work backwards. So if we have, say, a monounsaturated, or a one double bond uh, fatty acid 
after the fire, you can then deduct that it could be more unsaturated before the fire because of degradation through the fire and being a reactant in the material starting the fire, or maybe starting the fire, creating the fire. So that's one thing that uh, a lot of conversation goes on about is the report as it's worded, as as is after the fire. The investigators need to understand that what, what we're looking at is what is left after the reaction, I think, is, is the simplest thing to say. Yeah. And we can't make that determination that, well, this could have, it could have had a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids in there. We can't make that determination. But, you know, based upon other evidence that may be present, maybe we find a, a distinct petroleum distillate that is in the um, cloth materials, let's say, as well as a comparison sample of the um, stain from the sink. We can say, well, this is a unique petroleum distillate. We found a little bit of fatty acid methyl esters in your debris. We found some ignitable liquid in the debris sample, and it's consistent with this unique ignitable liquid or carrier or solvent that's in the known sample. So it's kind of important that, that they understand what's going on as far as the reaction goes. And, and two, I think it's important that they understand what to sample and what not to sample. A lot of times we get questions, well, I've got wood at the um, intersection or you know, between the floor and the wall, should I take that? Well, what are we looking for? Are we looking for ignitable liquids? Are we looking for fatty acids? And, and so I think, what we here try to do is in is educate the investigators what type of samples to take you know and i think it's as we had stated earlier and doug had talked about that it's important for the investigator to communicate with us even if they're on the fire scene or before they go out to the fire scene what it is that they have as far as their fire scene goes okay so how do investigators recognize the that that the fatty acid analysis may be needed and how do they properly collect that for testing what mistakes have they you know do they make I, you're touching on it already i i think quite frequently the investigators will take samples let's say uh, cloth materials and they'll submit them to the laboratory and want to check for ignitable liquids well whenever we see anything if we're not told ahead of time, if we see anything that comes across our laboratory that has cloth material or from a dryer or from a bucket or whatever, we stop right then and call the investigator and say, hey, listen, let's, let's talk about your sample a little bit. What's the background on this case? And quite frequently they'll say, well, you know, there was a staining fire or um, this is cloth material from a dryer and everything ignited and we, educate them then, well, look, this is what you need to do. Let's do this analysis and then we'll do the fatty acid analysis. And, and unfortunately, uh, uh, investigators, some investigators are not familiar with that type of testing. But I think it's getting better, Doug. Do you agree as far as I their agree. familiarity? Yeah, yeah, I remember years ago, 20 years ago, Eric Stoffer and I were playing around with these fatty acids trying to get away from infrared or FTIR to basically make it simple. And so the FDA um, had this FAME protocol. So we played with it and 
we were going around talking about it and we had a bunch of people that said that this thing, you know, spontaneous combustion, there's no such thing. And even up to the point Mm -hmm. where in one of the state chapters, uh, a fire chief said, that's just a myth. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. And up to, I think it was about eight years ago. So from the last 10 years, there's been a, even in subrogation and SIU, all kinds of testing. It's, it's a, it's a relatively frequent test these days. And a lot of people have finally, you know, realized that this is capable of happening and, and people are still learning about it and the mechanism of how it happens. But yeah, there was some fire chiefs that, that even a few years ago that didn't believe it happened. And uh, because it's just, it's an unwitnessed fire in the dryers, you know, people with some massage oils just wash their clothes and rags and, you know, middle of the night, there's a fire. So, yeah, that's uh, with this testing and uh, with our stuff we do at the lab- our laboratories, we're able to uh, open their eyes. But, yeah, it's a uh, relatively new thing. And now that people are opening their eyes to it, now they're starting to see that some of the undetermined fires are, could be, you know, assisted with actually having a cause. And then, then the uh, insurance companies are following suit with the uh, subrogation with uh, painters and improperly discarded rags. And so there's a lot of money involved with recouping and uh, finding whoever may be at fault with GCs and painters and homeowners or whatever may be the cause. Everything's different. But, yeah, uh, it's becoming a very popular test and a lot of people are opening their eyes to it. I, I think right now it's more so understood by those that are in the private investigation industry because they deal more with um, subrogation cases. We're still trying to educate a lot of our customers who are fire departments or investigation units in various states or whatever as to far as as far as the uh, idea of self-heating. I know we had a case up in um, Vermont where, or no, excuse me, New York, where the fire investigator for that municipality indicated that it was a brand new restaurant and this woman had a fire in her dryer. And he said, I just, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's arson. And I went, well, let's talk about this a little bit. And he thought she was going under financially, which she wasn't. But we analyzed the um, the rags, and sure enough, there were high levels of fatty acids. She wasn't even getting any of it out, to be honest with you, as far as the through the laundering process. Hmm. So I think we need to still focus on educating the public sector as far as self heating and spontaneous combustion. Yeah, they're they're picking it up. They uh, and it's it, but they're public safety, right? It's uh, it's not arson. They really don't care about it, but they're seeing these cases in some of the elderly communities. And they're like, she just discussed about the dryers. A lot of it's in the dryers and uh, things that normally by themselves wouldn't self-heat or spontaneously combust. But once you get the dryer to initiate that, it, it tends to happen. So we've had a few fire departments question that and just say they have a weird fire and they send it in. I'm like, hey, man, you got a ton of fatty acids here in the dryer and this is you know, typical of your scenario that this is self-heating fire, not an arson fire. So they're coming around. And again, it's difficult for them because they're, they're looking for a crime. And so they're uh, having more determinations of it not being a crime, but they still have to figure that out. So, but they're, they're getting it pretty good. And so with, with our laboratories and a lot of the information going out, they're picking it up pretty quick. So 
I, I want to step back a little bit. Um, we've talked about, you know, doing more to collect evidence properly, uh, what mistakes have been made. But if I'm an investigator and I walk into a room near an origin, I'm guessing, uh, how do I recognize that fatty acid analysis may be needed? Um, what you could look for, the key, some of the indicator, physical indicators at a fire scene, usually, now I'm going to leave extension of the fire out. We're just going to go basic, basic fire indicators, but it may be a isolated fire where there's just a fire. There's no, this may be in a circle uh, in the living room and there's, looks like a piece of plastic underneath it and just a circular fire and just unusual. So it's an isolated fire, unwitnessed fire, lots of smoke in, on the walls. And then you can say, well, what else could cause this? Well, one of the common ones is, of course, spontaneous combustion. So anytime you have think of self-heating or these three indicators, you can think of, I want to do a fatty acid test on this. Because I know that these, these fatty acids can create a scenario in which fire can occur unwitnessed, middle of the night, lots of smoke. These reactions have lots of smoke. And then every now and then, say it's a different fire and say there's someone that smelled something really bad that smelled pretty good before with like burning tortillas or someone was cooking and then it turned rancid and just nasty eyes watering. Those are indications of a self-heating fire. And then you want to do a fatty acid test with that fire as well. Hmm. So you have physical indicators that, that would assist them to determine if they want this test or even a modified Mackie test, which is a physical test to see if in fact that product does self-heat and if it does self-heat will it go to ignition very helpful and i i like the way you described uh the indications uh at the scene laurel anything you want to add there yeah one of the scenarios also that that an investigator may see is in in either households or um other facilities where they take the dry the towels or rags or whatever cloth materials out of the dryer when they are still hot and fold them up and pile them up. And so you may have a fire in, let's say, a laundry basket next to the dryer that doesn't have any cloth material left in it or on a shelf in the storage area of a, a restaurant. So those are other things that you can look for. Um, to, you can see that the cloth materials will be burned from the inside the most charring will be from the inside and less on the outside of the material itself. Great points. Thank you. So let's talk about alcohols. What are some of the properties related to alcohols and their presence at fire scenes that investigators should be aware of? Well, the biggest one is they're water soluble. So that which is not evaporated, water soluble, uh, alcohols, first of all, are single components. When we look at ignitable liquids like gasoline, kerosene, diesel fuel, whatever, those are hundreds and hundreds of different components. The alcohols and the ketones are the lightest components that we can recover from debris samples. Um, and most of them, as I said, are water soluble. So that which does not evaporate during burning can oftentimes be diluted to such a concentration that we won't be able to detect it. Um, they're tricky little beast, but we do find them quite frequently, to be honest. So I understand not all alcohols 
Burnwell. Um, can either one of you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, basically, uh, alcohols in general, I think people think of ethyl alcohol or drinking alcohol. So beer, for instance, the percentage by volume, you know, three and a half percent to 13 percent. That 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 won't burn. Matter of fact, anything less than 40 percent by volume of alcohol, Jack Daniels, you know, vodka, stuff like that. There's so much water content it doesn't burn that well. Uh, you get into grain alcohol, golden grain, you know, spirits like that then it becomes more useful. And so you get more heat release and less water. So think of the percentages with mixed with water. So that's, of course, then that makes it water soluble, but as far as seeing it. Now, the other ketones you mentioned, like acetone, um, some of the ice mixed ice, what do you call it? Isopropyl alcohol, IPAs. Um, they, the higher the percentage of those, 91%, they will actually burn a little better. But normally on a hard surface, they'll only burn for up to 30 seconds and go out. So they'll need a medium to support the, the burning of it. So there's not much heat release rate either with these alcohols. And at ASTM on our science side, like Laurel said, they're difficult to find, but we do find them. So the old method, we would say that it'd be a magnitude of order stronger than anything else. Well, now it's changed to uh, uh, should be a large excess of the compound and visual reference to the average matrix peaks. So it's very difficult to do, but it's, it can be done. There's other techniques that's coming out that uh, will be published soon, the ways to identify the alcohols. But as far as alcohols go, um, they're very difficult to identify also because they're in a lot of matrix, foams, uh, clothing from bodies, um, all kinds of good stuff. So yeah, it's a difficult thing for the laboratory and then it helps with the fire scene if they have containers, you know, uh, plastic or metal, say a metal acetone can or something that may look like a cord acetone can that someone may have purchased at Home Depot. So things like that are to consider if you think it's an alcohol fire or someone says it was by a bar is to think about the alcohol content versus water content and to see if it's actually effective because they make poor accelerants or ignitable liquids as far as that goes. So knowing this um, about your ability to do some analysis on alcohols, how is that valuable in a fire investigation? Um, I had one yesterday. As a matter of fact, it was, it was, I started laughing thinking we had this podcast that that case would come up, but uh, one yesterday um, in a fire scene, uh, you know, I got the sample. I saw this, I said, wow, this is acetone's a little strong. So I uh, did another technique and bam, it was just off the charts. So I called and said, what, what's going on with this fire scene? He sent me a picture of a mat in front of a, in the kitchen, in front of the uh, oven, where you can see the soot on the outside of the oven. The oven was clean and it was just a mat and smoke everywhere. And he didn't, he knew that there was something strange with the mat, didn't really smell an odor and uh, sent that in and, well, lo and behold, there's acetone there. And uh, it's, uh, and then he, of course, there was a container, which always helps. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, there's a brain teaser for that guy. And uh, we were able to help him out. And then everything else started coming together as far as the uh, scene indicators as well. So it worked out pretty good. Good. Laurel, anything to add? We analyzed evidence from a case in um, New York. It was in Oneonta, New York, actually. And we received the um, 
samples from the investigator that was working for the insurance carrier. We analyzed the evidence and we could thought we could smell isopropyl alcohol when we received the evidence. And then after we took it out of the oven for a few minutes, we could definitely smell isopropyl alcohol. Well, it turns out that <clears throat> this was a case where a, um, a man who his brother owned a um, hair cutting shop or a barber shop was angry at his girlfriend. So he went into that shop and bought two, took two one gallon bottles of isopropyl alcohol and he poured it at the base of her doorway. And this was a two flat and there was a, a family upstairs. The family was a, a former Oneonta firefighter his fiance and four nephews. Well, the fire started at the bottom. The former firefighter, Mr. Heller, was able to get everyone out of the uh, upstairs room or the upstairs apartment. Uh, the actual girlfriend of this, um, the suspect was at a bar with another man and he had seen her and it was a case of jealous rage and he was gonna burn her out. The um, firefighter perished, the former firefighter perished, but we were able to find um, the isopropyl alcohol quite a bit in the uh, flooring material at the bottom of the floor. What was interesting also in this case is they had a video of the suspect lighting the fire with the isopropyl alcohol, which we didn't know anything about until um, way after uh, going, actually when, when I went to testify in the case. But um, unfortunately, Mr. Heller perished in this fire, but uh, they were able to get justice for the, the family in this case. That's a sad case, but uh, good to know that you were there to help make it more concrete. Uh, Doug, anything else you wanna add as far as examples of some of your casework? There was... Uh... E85, it's a 85% ethanol and 15% gasoline. And part of the standard, it's it's, it's uh, very vague. And so we've had a couple cases in which, or one specific case, in which it was in some clothing. And of course, we're finding this ethanol. I never, I didn't see much indication of anything else being the aromatics of gasoline at all, because it's mainly ethanol. Well, ethyl alcohol is, you know, can be an alcohol. So basically it comes down, is it, you know, Jack Daniels or gasoline? And it, uh, it was very odd to say in here, but with the eth ethanol, uh, testing the sample again, I didn't see any portion of the gasoline. Well, it brought some more samples in and it got stronger and stronger. And I'm able to see a little bit of the gasoline. And I was looking at that and I was like, wow, this is interesting. So uh, this fire went from possibly a, an accidental fire that uh, burnt the house down to basically a arson fire with the guy now being able to track that him to the gas station, purchasing specifically E85 with a different color handle. And then we were able to determine it was not, in fact, ethyl alcohol, but in fact, E85 gasoline. Wow, that's very interesting. I, as a guy who rides a motorcycle, I'm not a real big fan of E85, but I'm wondering if um, it, it's a horrible fuel. Yeah, well, then there's that. Um, 
I'm also wondering, you know, was there any purpose? Uh, did this person select E85 or did was it yes. just cheapest at the pump that day? It was cheapest at the pump. And it's 30 <laughs> cents. It seems to be 30 to 50 cents a gallon cheaper. And it's about 30% less efficient. But as far as, I guess, if you're going to do something for fraud, you want to save all the money you can, I guess. And, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. It was uh, under the EUO. It's finally, it was cheaper. Well, so for all you out there considering this, it doesn't matter. The lab's going to get mm-hmm. you, uh, whether it's E85 or uh, high test. Anything else you want to add there, Laurel? No, that's great. That's an interesting case, Doug. That sure is. I, I hadn't thought about that. I just get excited when I can find pure gasoline. <laughs> so uh, we've covered a lot. And I, I think it's, you know, it's some pretty deep stuff uh, when you actually get into the heart of it. And, and I one thing I want to review, uh, Doug, you mentioned some books and some articles uh, that people should read. I wanted to give you an opportunity to repeat those. Uh, the uh, forensic analysis of fire debris and explosions, uh, explosives. It was a book written by a bunch of analysts, ATF, some FBI folks, and I wrote chapter four talking about alternative fuels, uh, biofuels such as E85 or the biodiesels, um, and then for the what we've been discussing for general background knowledge. And in chapter 14 of the fire debris analysis book, I know it specifically says fire debris analysis book, but really that book's useful in evidence collection and preservation as well. And it comes in a PDF, searchable PDF, but uh, they can grab that book and check out chapter 14, specifically for the fatty acids or the spontaneous combustion self-heating. It explains the double bonds in the uh, 18 carbon chain and all the way to the thermodynamic reaction where it creates thermal runaway to the interpretation forensic approach. And it really goes through it. It's not a, it's an easy read. It's not very big technical words that aren't explained. And it's good for just general knowledge for anybody in the field from attorneys, adjusters, investigators, or even, you know, anybody just interested in general. And it's uh, really spells it out in general pretty well. Laurel, anything you want to add there? Um, I think he's pretty much covered it. That and okay. and um, the um, IIII evidence collection guide. I love it when you bring that up. As I said, <laughs> we're headed down uh, to Huntsville, Alabama to End Cedar next week, and we're going to be adding, oh, I think five or six different types of evidence collection to the evidence guide. So that'll be updated in, in the months to come. And uh, yeah, it's a great online tool. And uh, we hear we hear good things from people about that. Um, I guess the last thing, and it's sort of repetitive, but I think it's a really important topic. Uh, You know, what are tips for how fire investigators can take advantage of what the lab provides? Um, And and I'll give you each sort of like, you know, a minute to to say, you know, hey, these are the best things we got for you. Um, Do something about it. I think the best thing that they can do to take advantage of the lab is just give us a call and let's chat. Let's talk about your case. You know, if in doubt, give us a shout is what we like to say. You know, just we're, we're here to educate you as far as evidence collection. And we're here to protect your case as far as evidence collection. And I think that's important to know as well. Um, but I think communication is the is the key here with the investigators and the laboratory. And, and you know, we're always excited to hear from 
clients and to talk to clients. If you're in the areas, come to the laboratories, come visit the laboratories, see what we do. We'll be happy and Doug will be happy to show you, <clears throat> show, excuse me, the investigator, what we do on a daily basis, what the interpretation of the data looks like, what a GC looks like, what a mass spectrometer looks like. Um, but in conclusion, I just think it's, it's communication. Just feel free to communicate with your laboratory. We're here as your service avenue for evidence collection and interpretation of data. Doug, your last chance. Uh, uh... Pitch what you know. What you think fire investigators can do to best take advantage of working with you in the lab? Yeah, best thing they can do is basically utilize our services and resources, which is or the people and the knowledge. Um, and basically, we're here to help. We are we are basically at their disposal. We are here for them and only them and their case and everybody involved with the case. And so, with that, as Laurel mentioned. Again, we'll be glad to talk to you, show you how it works. A lot of people thinks we think we just run the cans through a machine and it just gives it, gives them, us the data and we give it to them. Well, I like to show them that it's just a charcoal strip uh, the size of your pinky now and actually show them what it looks like. So when they're at a fire scene and they're thinking of how best to preserve vapors, they have an idea in their mind and what they and have a visual and it helps them understand. So with an understanding, so we can help them understand what their purpose is and what they're doing to collect the evidence to try to prove their hypothesis and come to a conclusion for the client is to uh, communicate and find out what we can provide them as well as just references and material that they may need on a case that we, we're not even involved with. So we're here to help. We're here to help and uh, make them the best they can be regardless if they use us or not. You know what I love that both of you said, and it, it gets to an irritation that I have these days. I'm a phone guy. Um, I always loved the phone. If, if I could go have email go away for a while or just go into details, that would be a great thing for me. But I love the fact that you focused on using the phone to call. Don't send an email, you know, to try to describe a long case or, or a context or is lost so many times in text and tone text and content is lost in text you don't get that as you do on the telephone yeah. or facetime and then so, the other option is you know the fact that both of you are willing to open up your lab and give somebody a tour and let them understand why it's important that they do certain things the way that they do um and that probably opens up a lot of opportunity uh for them to do a better job out there in the field uh, i guess i i want to give you guys one last thing to say i i said that before but i thought of another um technology is changing there's a lot of stuff going on uh, with analysis and and you know what we can do with computers. Um, either one of you want to talk about some of the new things coming at us from the labs? Well, we just got a new GCMS um, with a different type of um, enhanced detector, which we're seeing quite a bit of increase in sensitivity. That's the the GCMS that we use for ignitable liquids. We also have one that we just do fatty acid methyl esters on. Um, but other than than that, um, I don't think there's really anything that's coming to the forefront anytime soon. Other than, you know, just maybe communication via Zoom um, or communication via um, FaceTime with investigators. 
as we had talked about before. I think that's just the just fascinating and fabulous that we can actually be with the investigator at the fire scene and say, no, look at that over there. Take a sample here. Doug? Yes. The, uh, the, as far as the technology, really the technology with sensitivities, you know, where, it, where it's moving, I'd like to see more specificity uh, in the data collection, but we're just not there yet. So we have about as good as technology we have for now. I do look forward to new techniques down the road. But as far as uh, going through with the investigator, with the technology outside the laboratory in which we can then harmonize the communication, such as the Zoom, FaceTime uh, at the fire scene, uh, giving them ideas of something, a container that looks odd. Uh, don't be afraid to collect it. It's easier to collect it and not use it than to not collect it and need it, kind of back, kind of like Aflac. Uh, but that's something we notice in the lab at, at a fire scene is we, we notice weird things like that. Investigators may not because they, they're inside the box, so to speak, and we're not outside the box. So we can bring the uh, another perspective to them. And so that's the value added by the laboratories between Laurel and myself that we provide the investigators. Beautiful. I appreciate the information you guys have shared. We've had a lot going on. Am I, am I missing anything before we uh, end for the day? We, we seem to have had a lot of good, good information. That was good conversation. Good chat and good talking to you guys. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you um, from everybody at the IAAI and CFI trainer, and I hope investigators and attorneys and others will use this as a motivation to reach out to their laboratories and talk about some of the things we've discussed here and, and open those lines of communication and collaboration for better results. We appreciate your time today, both Doug and Laura. Laurel, um, thank you. Thanks, thank Rob. you. Yeah, too. Thank you, all of you. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security with support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next month. For the IAAI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.